When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Marguerite de Navarre, also known to history as Marguerite d'Angoulême and Marguerite d'Alençon, was a remarkable royal woman who lived in the early 16th century in France. It's little wonder that one of our listeners got in touch to suggest her as a subject for the podcast. Sister to King Francois I, she operated as his queen in all but name, as an influencer, politician and diplomat during the long confinements of his actual queen, Claude. Marguerite was highly educated, bright and charismatic, an activist for reform and a patron of intellectuals, artists and writers. She's been called the mother of the Renaissance in France. But she was also herself a writer, the author, in fact, of many works, among which were her reflections on the spiritual life, The Mirror of the Sinful Soul, which would greatly influence Elizabeth I, and her masterpiece, a female and feminised version of Boccaccio's collection of stories, The Decameron. Marguerite's was called The Eptemeron. To learn about Marguerite of Navarre is to dive deep into the tumultuous nature of religious belief before the Reformation had irrevocably split the church in two, into artistic development when the Renaissance was new in Northern Europe, and female power when even the most elevated of women could be the target of male violence. Our guide today is nearly as glittering as her subject. Dr Emily Butterworth is a reader in early modern French at King's College London. She's written on gossip, scandal, Rabelais and Montaigne, but her latest work is Marguerite de Navarre, A Critical Companion, published in 2022. Dr Butterworth, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I am absolutely delighted that we're going to talk about one of the most interesting women in the 16th century, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We are talking about a woman who is known by many names, perhaps in literary circles, particularly as Marguerite de Navarre, but for fans of Anne Boleyn as Marguerite d'Angoulême, <laughs> and she had several other names as well. Perhaps you could just start by telling us a bit about who Marguerite was and her upbringing. Absolutely. So she was born Marguerite d'Angoulême, as you say, in 1492. Her father was Charles d'Angoulême and her mother was Louise of Savoy. Her most kind of illustrious connection is, of course, her brother. She was sister to Francis, who became Francis I of France. When 
Francis was born, he was third in line to the throne. It was possible that he would become king, but it wasn't by any means a kind of done deal. But their mother, Louise, was always convinced that he would become king. And she raised her children to expect that. She raised Marguerite to play second fiddle to her younger brother, who was destined for greatness. Putting it that way, though, does denigrate Louise's commitment to Marguerite and her education, though, I think, because Marguerite was quite exceptional, even for an elite noble woman of her time, in the education that she received alongside her brother. So Louise and, to a certain extent, Charles as well, her father, were very committed to the new humanist education that was coming out of Italy. Francis and Marguerite were both raised in that new humanist learning, surrounded by books. When they were born in Cognac, Louise turned their court into a centre of learning, erudition and culture. And then when Francis became heir apparent when he was four years old, they moved to the royal castles of Amboise and Blois. And again, Louise brought that kind of Italian humanist culture with them, encouraged reading, encouraged debate, encouraged discussion, conversation. And so Marguerite was given this really quite extraordinary education, even for an elite woman of her time. Before her brother became king, she was married to the Duke of Alençon in Normandy in France, became the Duchess of Alençon. So sometimes she's known as Marguerite d'Alençon, particularly in the time when that was her title. Francis became king in 1515 and in 1517 he made her Duchess of Berry and at the same time made the Duchy of Berry a ducal peerage. So that basically entailed that Marguerite herself became a ducal peer, one of the very few women to hold that role in the French 16th century. So she had really considerable political power in her own right, as it were, or through her marriages, through her titles, as well as being Francis's really close advisor, trusted counsellor, and that continued throughout their lives. Charles d'Alençon died just after the Battle of Pavia in 1525, and then Marguerite married again, married the King of Navarre, Henri d'Albret, and at that point she becomes Marguerite de Navarre and a queen. And so in certain political situations or diplomatic contexts, she is her brother's peer, her brother's equal. So she has really considerable political heft and influence. She is an accomplished diplomat. She is involved in conversations in almost every context you can think of in the early 16th century, political, religious, diplomatic. To all intents and purposes, she acts as the Queen of France for much of her brother's reign, while his wife, Claude, is almost constantly pregnant and so absent from the court. And together, she and Francis build this really glittering, humanist, progressive, in many ways, French court in the early 16th century. You mentioned the closeness of the relationship between Francois and Marguerite. How great an influence do you think she had on him? 
That is a really good question and quite a difficult one to answer. And I think François was absolutely his own man. He was very stubborn. He was very self-willed. I think probably her influence waxed and waned throughout the reign. So at the beginning, in the sort of late 1510s, 1520s, they were very close. She was very confident or optimistic that she would be able to influence him towards reform and various other political events and rivalries and dynastic conflicts got in the way of that, I think, as his reign progressed. And as always in the 16th century, politics and religion was completely inextricable. And really, Francois's openness to religious reform was very much dependent on how he felt the sort of political conflict was going or the political balance of power in Europe was going. So again, as his rivalry with Charles V of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire developed, he became more or less open and agreeable towards reform and the reformers that Marguerite protected. So I think she had considerable influence on him at the beginning. And I think her enthusiasm for the literature and the culture of the Italian Renaissance also influenced him and influenced his really considerable programme of embellishment, I guess, of France. But yes, as might be expected, other political events and concerns influenced how far he wanted to listen to his sister, I think, as his reign went on. I suppose one of the crucial things is also that through the duration of her first marriage, she remained childless. She's a terribly well-educated woman for her time, as you've said, but lots of terribly well-educated women got entirely bound up with the process of having children, looking after children and constant reproduction. What effect do you think those years of childlessness had on her? I think they were ambivalent, actually, because, yes, as you say, childbearing is perhaps the principal obligation of elite women in this period after a good marriage, of course. And she is very aware during her marriage to Charles d'Alençon that she is not bearing children. Letters of that period bristle with these images of kind of sterility and barrenness. And it's something that is really at the forefront of her mind Of course, she was raised in that kind of environment as well. And her mother, Louise, even while she was still a child herself, visited a soothsayer to try and plumb the future on whether she would have children or not. So from the time she was born, she's been surrounded with this expectation and these obligations of a good marriage and then childbearing. So during her marriage to Charles, she is very aware that she is not fulfilling those obligations. But as you say, at the same time, that does give her a certain liberty to follow her brother's court around, to reign at his side in Queen in all but name, to influence policy, to patronise artists, poets, religious figures, to guide Francois and France to a certain extent in the development of humanist culture. All of those things that were closed to Francois's wife, Claude, because she was almost constantly pregnant for the time that she was married to Francois. I think Marguerite recognises that freedom that she was given at the same time as recognising it as a kind of dereliction of duty, if you like. 
And interestingly, when she does fall pregnant, finally, during her second marriage, again, she experiences that with some ambivalence. And she's pleased to be finally fulfilling this role of childbearing and bearing the heir for her husband and her husband's kingdom. But at the same time, when she writes to Francois about it, it's very clear that she feels that her pregnancy is keeping her away from his side and keeping her from doing him the kind of service that she got used to doing in the 1510s and 1520s. I think there's got to be lots of women throughout history who were very keen to have children and yet felt quite ambivalent about actually being pregnant. Indeed. Let's pick up on this idea of François and Marguerite operating as a team when it came to humanist thinking and to the Renaissance. I mean, she's been called the mother of the Renaissance in France. Could you explain why that is, what the evidence is on which this is based? Yes. François and Marguerite, to a certain extent, we think. When he became king, he really took a path of steering France into a kind of glorious kind of cultural future. And that was through various disciplines, architecture, art, learning, education. So these are all things that Francois did, but we think that Marguerite had a very strong influence on directing or encouraging him in this direction. So the Collège de France was established with chairs in Greek and Hebrew, so for the first time in France. Artists from the Italian Renaissance were invited over to France to work, including Leonardo da Vinci, which is, of course, why the Mona Lisa is now in the ex-royal collections in the Louvre. And Francois also embarked on a really extensive building project in which he built those glorious palaces in the Loire and renovated rather dreary medieval palaces that the French court had occupied and was still occupying. So again, this kind of great patronage of literature, the visual arts, architecture, and Marguerite herself in her own was a great patron of literature, of poets, and also of religious figures. And contemporary writers mention her in the same breath as her brother. So she does seem to be thought of as an equal patron as Francois in literature, poetry, architecture, and also religion. I'd like to ask you about Marguerite's religious position. Because it's complex and it's certainly something that's only possible really in the first half of the 16th century because it seems to amalgamate two positions that by the late 16th century are really distinct. Yes, I think so. She is a reforming Catholic. So she is part of a group who are now known as evangelicals in the early 16th century in France. Evangelicals because of their focus on the primacy of the gospel, that is the evangile. This group quite a loose group. They share a lot of the criticisms of the Catholic Church that were being made by the group that became known as Protestants. They share a lot of the criticisms that Martin Luther makes of the Catholic Church, but they never quite make that step into schism. So they're reforming Catholics who want to see reform of the church from within the church without actually separating and creating a new religion. It's a position that is only really possible 
in the early 16th century before those positions of Catholic and Protestant become polarised and hardened. And it's one of the most interesting things, trying to unpick representations of Marguerite subsequently because she does tend to be adopted by either side and her position is represented as being much more definite maybe than it actually was. Because while she is reforming Catholic, she remains a Catholic in many key areas, in many key beliefs. So, for example, she held the Catholic position on the Eucharist, which was one of the most divisive differences in belief between Catholics and Protestants. She was a great believer in the importance of monasticism and supported a very large number of convents and monasteries, set up some convents and monasteries herself and financed them. So she is a reforming Catholic, but she's a strange kind of Protestant, even a strange kind of proto-Protestant. And as her contemporaries pointed out, she never made that explicit step into Protestantism, unlike her daughter, Jeanne de Navarre, who does become a Protestant. But then at the same time, she's a strange Catholic, and she's a Catholic who holds beliefs that became absolutely and inextricably linked with Protestantism later on. That is the primacy of the scriptures, the primacy of faith, and this very strong belief in the incompetence of the human being to achieve salvation through their own efforts. So those beliefs later on in the century would mark her as a Protestant or a crypto-Protestant. But as you say, in the 1520s, 1530s, she was able to hold those beliefs without having to take that step into schism. You put that so well because it indicates to us how... It's all to play for, really, at that time, that you can have someone who feels that the Bible is the only true touchstone and has sort of almost Lutheran or fundamentally Lutheran belief about the depth of human sinfulness and the utter reliance on God's grace, which, as you say, become markers of Protestantism later, and yet does not become a Protestant. And so it shows us that this was absolutely being created, this schism between the two sides and who was on which side was absolutely being forged at that moment. And that people like Marguerite could have gone either way. Yes. And indeed, if history itself had taken a different course, they would now be viewed in a different way too. People like Marguerite did not know what would happen later on in the 16th century and afterwards. Towards the end of her life, she might have started to get intimations over the growing conflict and start to fear the devastating civil wars that were about to come in France, but she died before they started. She died before the Council of Trent made its pronunciations and decisions about Catholic doctrine to a certain extent in response to the Reformation. So she didn't know those things. She didn't know what would be decided and what side of the dividing line she might find herself on. Now, one example of that is that she writes Le Miroir de l'Âme Pécheresse, The Mirror of a Sinful Soul, which people who study the Tudors might know because Catherine Parr passes it to Princess Elizabeth, later Elizabeth I, who translates it. At the time that Marguerite was writing it, 
and publishing it, which is an extraordinary thing in itself, in 1531, it's been described as a militant act. So can you tell us how so and what the reaction was to it? Yes, this is such an interesting moment in French publication history, I think. So Marguerite writes this very long devotional poem called The Mirror of the Sinful Soul, which is a meditation really on sin, on human incompetence, human fallibility. There are utter reliance on God's grace for salvation. There's also a really quite beautiful passage in it where she develops the metaphor that we find in the Song of Songs, in fact, of the marriage between the soul and Jesus Christ. There's lots of very interesting kind of gender play going on there in which the soul becomes feminized but then masculinized. The gender boundaries are very fluid and really quite interesting. So it is drawing on those Lutheran beliefs and those beliefs that become absolutely entrenched on the Protestant side of the divide later on in the century. It's published, first of all, by the evangelical printer Simon Dubois in Alençon, so where Marguerite was Duchess. Simon Dubois had moved to Alençon from Paris because the environment that Marguerite had created there was more conducive to evangelical printing. The first printing in 1531 passes really without comment, but then there's another printing in 1533, in Paris this time, by another printer called Antoine Augereau. And this one causes really a lot of disturbance. It's printed anonymously, so without the name of the author, that's not so much of a problem. The problem is that it's printed without the name of the printer, and that was really crucial in the 16th century for censorship purposes and just authorization and purposes of censorship. And the Faculty of Theology at the Sorbonne immediately condemn it. And it's not quite clear the reasons for that condemnation. In any case, François immediately pushes back and forces a retraction of the condemnation, at which point the Faculty of Theology say it's merely because there hasn't been the name of the printer put on this edition. So it's for procedural purposes rather than doctrinal or reason of the content. And indeed, after that, Antoine Augereau prints two more editions, one with Marguerite's name on it. So it's not by any means forbidden. However, the conservative faculty of theology has clearly taken a very decisive step against the sister of the king as a kind of warning shot, maybe, in the conflict between the sort of movement for reform and the conservative powers that are still incredibly strong. They are absolutely dominant in the Faculty of Theology and are very present at court as well, in Francis's court. There's a very strong conservative faction there. You called it a militant act. It's been called a militant act by critics who see this poem, The Mirror of the Sinful Soul, very much as deliberate manifesto almost on Marguerite's part of the French reformers and it seems that it may have been taken that way by the Faculty of Theology in its condemnation. Sex 
it might surprise you to know that oh, I've been around for a while now. In fact, we are all the living, walking, breathing, talking proof that sex has been around for a long time. And over on the Betwixt the Sheets podcast with me, Kate Lister, I will be rooting around for the kinkiest, quirkiest stories in the history of sex, scandal and society. Or in other words, the best bits. Well, at least I think so. From bras to BDSM, from African warrior queens to witches, join me as I bed hop throughout time and civilizations to get under the cover with the most fascinating things that we've been doing, not to mention the downright weird. For example, did you know that men in ancient Greece were so turned on by a naked statue of Aphrodite that it had to be protected by guards? We have accounts of men trying to have sex with the statue. It caused a sensation. And that university professors once moonlighted as grave robbers. We were executing less and less people, so mm. there was a real shortage. If you want to hear about all of this and more, then join me betwixt the sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. It's interesting thinking about that printing and what cultural restraints there were on Marguerite because of her gender. And I suppose the same is true when we think about the role you've already introduced that she played as a stateswoman, a diplomat, a political actor. How did she respond to the culture at the time and what it was inviting her as a woman to do and what she wanted to do? She clearly addresses this question of her gender in the preface to the collected works that she had printed in 1547. Modesty is really quite widespread in prefaces throughout the 16th century in this period for male authors as well as female authors. But while male authors tend to emphasise their lack of education, female authors will emphasise their gender and apologise or excuse themselves or excuse their work's lack of coherence or kind of dignity because of their gender. And Marguerite's no exception to that. She does make those very explicit moves. She introduces herself as a woman. She excuses the deficiencies of her work because she is a woman. But at the same time, she does slide into a much more general kind of critique, again, of these kind of reforming conventions of human fallibility, human weakness. So she does tend to link the feminine condition with the human condition. So not to make a special case, particularly for the woman writing, if you like. And whilst there is modesty, and I don't know if she was involved in titling it, that work you mentioned is called Les Marguerites de la Marguerite des Princesses. 
which is a play on words, of course, of her name, but the meaning of her name as meaning pearls. Marguerite means a pearl. So these are the pearls of the Pearl of Princesses. Can I ask you about 1525? This extraordinary moment at which François is taken prisoner by Charles V, and it's Marguerite who makes the journey to Madrid, who travels by sea to Barcelona, rides 30-odd miles a day to get to François and negotiates for him. I wonder how effective a diplomat you think she was. And I also want to ask your opinion of the final deal which is made where François is exchanged for two of his sons being imprisoned, which always seems to me so awful. (laughs) Do you think Marguerite approved? What do you think her role was there? This is an extraordinary moment in her life, isn't it? She is summoned to Madrid by Francois to head up the negotiations for his release with the Spanish. And she is praised at the time by other writers, by ambassadors for her diplomacy, for her charm, for her kind of very subtle negotiations and her very subtle diplomatic style. And at various moments in her embassy to Madrid, she is by turns optimistic and then disappointed and mistrustful of what she sees as the fundamentally dishonest position of the Spanish. Of course, her particular mission ends in failure. She goes back to France, not having secured Francois's release. And in fact, it seems that she goes back to France in some haste, having probably authorised or somehow approved a failed attempt to spring Francois from prison. So she does leave Madrid having failed in her mission, effectively. And her letters back to Francois during her journey back to France are full of denunciations of Spanish duplicity and bad faith, which itself, I think, could be seen as quite a canny kind of diplomatic position to take. It wasn't her fault. The Spanish never meant to come to an agreement anyway. And it's quite true that the final deal, as you say, that is struck contains really difficult and actually impossible demands on the French, including the renunciation of Burgundy, which Francois does agree to, but with no intention of actually keeping that promise once he is released. And one of the most significant and long-lasting parts of that final peace treaty that releases Francois from prison is the exchange of him for his two sons. And I think Marguerite does agree with this really quite devastating condition, believing that it is all important to have Francois back in France and reigning again. But you can speculate what happens after that. The son who becomes Henry II never saw eye to eye with Marguerite was always part of the conservative faction at court, so perhaps was never going to be that friendly towards his aunt. But you could imagine, couldn't you, that perhaps he bears some grudge for the role that she played in that really traumatic, marking experience of his childhood. Yes, I mean, given that our media is absolutely full with one particular man talking about the scarring events when he was 11 years old. I imagine that we can assume that this particular member of a royal family also (laughs) suffered greatly and bore a grudge against those he thought responsible. 
Yes, and contemporary accounts show him coming back from Spain, a changed boy, taciturn, gloomy, where before he was none of those things. I mean, I think we all would be if we were imprisoned for several years. So I'd really like to spend some time talking about her masterpiece, The Eptemeron. Can you introduce it, first of all? The Heptameron is, as you say, an absolute masterpiece of the French Renaissance. It's so interesting and so open-ended, so discursive, so open to different ideas and different positions, and so interesting still to read today, I think. In many ways, it is a book of its time, and it is a book that kind of draws on medieval traditions as well as the traditions of the new learning that came from Italy. It's a collection of short stories. It's based very explicitly on the model of Boccaccio's Decameron and very interestingly in the prologue where the storytelling is introduced and given a frame and motivated and situated. We're told very explicitly that this French Decameron comes out of a project that had its origins in the royal court. So the court of Francis and the Dauphin, who becomes Henry II, and his wife, Catherine de Medici. And so it's a very interesting kind of positioning and, I don't know, jostling maybe for cultural prestige, a rewriting of this sort of monument of Italian literature in French, with slight differences that make it better, that make it more interesting, that make it more contemporary. It was never finished. It's quite clear, I think, that Marguerite did intend to write a hundred stories. So that is, again, on the model of the Decameron, ten storytellers telling each other stories, one each a day for ten days. Again, like the Decameron, it's set in a kind of suspended time in retreat from the world. So the Decameron is written on the outskirts of Florence during the Black Death, where 10 nobles, seven noble women, three noble men have retreated from the city of Florence and passed the time by telling each other stories. In the same way, the Heptameron is set in a kind of suspended, almost liminal time set in the Pyrenees, so in this kind of location in between France and Spain. The storytellers, they've been taking the waters of a very famous spa. They're cut off from their route back to France by catastrophic floods and other natural disasters. Some of them are set upon by bandits. Some of them are attacked by bears. Many of them have seen their servants drown in floods. Longarine, one of the storytellers, has seen her husband murdered by thieves in the inn where they are staying. So they've come through these very traumatic experiences and gather together in this monastery in the Pyrenees. And while they wait for the bridges to be rebuilt over the rivers that have flooded, they decide to tell each other stories. So to bring to a conclusion this project that they say started in the French royal court and they envisage that they will bring it back to France as a kind of gift to the French court after they manage to get back to France. So like the Decameron, its storytelling is envisaged by the storytellers as a way to ward off melancholy, a way to pass the time. But unlike the Decameron, one of Marguerite's greatest innovations on the Decameron, the storytellers spend 
a lot of time discussing the meaning and the significance of the stories they've just told. So Boccaccio does have transitions between his stories where the storytellers discuss quite briefly what they've just heard and move on to the next story. Marguerite's storytellers sometimes spend longer talking about the stories than they do actually telling the story. So the emphasis in the Heptameron is very much on what stories mean, how stories are used by the people who hear them, how they're incorporated into the mental world and understanding of the external world by the people who hear them, to what extent they are exemplary, to what extent we can use these stories as models of behaviour or indeed anti-models of behaviour. So the emphasis on the discussions makes the heptameron very much this kind of open-ended discursive work which invites the reader to reflect on what they have just read also. Because there are so many voices and so many stories, it can hold ambiguity, it can hold different perspectives. But one thing that has been said about it is that it's a kind of coded memoir. And there is crucially this question about the recurrence of stories of sexual assault and rape. And one suggestion by critics has been that this might mirror Marguerite's own experience I'd love to know what your thoughts are on this. And also, I'd be very interested in her treatment of the subject and what it tells us about French culture and society at the time. One of the very remarkable characteristics of the heptameron is this insistence on sexual violence. And that becomes clearer and, I think, more threatening as the collection progresses. It has been described as a coded memoir. This happens almost immediately, or at least in the 16th century, people are reading it as a coded memoir. Pierre de Brantome, who is the chronicler of the later 16th century, draws on it quite extensively in his own memoirs of the French court. And he's the one who suggests or claims that some of these stories are autobiographical. He also places his own family very much in the context of the creation of the heptameron. So his grandmother was its maid of honour and his mother was also one of her ladies-in-waiting, so they are very much part of her circle and adds heft to his claims that these are autobiographical. There's one story in particular, story four, that Brontem claims is autobiographical, so about Marguerite's own experience. That is the story of a vivacious young widow with a brother who is assaulted in her own bed by a member of her brother's court, whom she knows, whom she has shown favour to in the past. She manages to fight him off and he retreats, covered in blood, to lick his wounds. And the kind of aftermath of that story is very interesting from the point of view of the environment that Marguerite is working in, I think, or operating in. So in the story, the noblewoman who is attacked isn't named. She is furious after she's managed to fight off her attacker and she wants justice she wants to tell her brother she wants her attacker punished and publicly humiliated and she says this to her lady-in-waiting who is there in the room with her and who has actually helped her fight off her attacker 
And her lady-in-waiting says something very interesting and something that is difficult for us to read, I think, in our historical moment. Because what her lady-in-waiting says is, don't do that. Don't make this story public because you will turn yourself into the object of gossip. And what people will say is that you must have encouraged him. People will say you showed him so much favour, they will not believe that he didn't have some kind of invitation from you. And if you make this story public, your own reputation and your own honour will suffer. And you will turn that into the object of gossip. You will turn yourself into a story, effectively, that can be passed around, that will be told and retold. And you will no longer have control over the interpretations of this story. A much better course is simply to withdraw your favour from this man. He knows already that he has transgressed, that he has made a mistake, that he will never have the same relationship with you again. And a much better punishment that is much safer for you is simply to withdraw your conversation and your favour from this man. And the lady in the story recognises the wisdom of that and that is what she does. What that tells us, I think, is a lot about the environment that Marguerite and other women of the period had to deal with. This environment that would prefer to silence women rather than give them justice that would prefer to blame the woman rather than to uncover the actual events and punish the attackers. If it is an autobiographical story, as Pierre de Brantome claims, it's quite an interesting kind of twist, I think, because Marguerite has found a way to tell her story anonymously, but nevertheless, she has incorporated her own story into the fabric of the heptameron and has used it to expose the conditions and the prejudices that she and other women were subject to. Yes, isn't that fascinating? By writing about staying silent, Marguerite is challenging it even in the process of confirming it in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is absolutely right. And that story speaks so strongly to a lot of contemporary experience. And the discussions that follow that story as well, and actually many other stories in the collection, enact the discussions that we imagine must have been going on at the time and indeed still go on now precisely about the value of women's testimony, the reception that they receive, the double standards that kind of underpin these kind of stereotypes of men as aggressors and women as victims, but also, as you say, as these inciting victims as well. And it's precisely those stereotypes and images that are ripped apart, actually, in the discussions that follow the stories. And interestingly, we find over and over that the male storytellers, by and large, are much happier to fall back on those cliches and those stereotypes. And it's the female storytellers who pick them up on it, who 
call a pause in the discussion who will say that may be true about this woman but that's not true about women in general who are very reluctant to move from the particular to the general or the particular to the universal and so who resist this kind of generalizing tendency that the male storytellers have and this kind of desire that the male storytellers exhibit to make one story of one woman stand for womankind in general. So that as well, I think, is another really interesting kind of connection between Margaret's time and our own. There's so much more I could ask you about the Ebtemeron and its representation of men and women and what love means and how to live a good life. But I want to ask you one more question before we end, which is about how Marguerite was perceived and remembered and presented immediately after her death. Because it seems that it is this great sense of what she stood for and her legacy that has come to dominate the continuing memory of her as much as what she herself did and wrote. Yes, you're absolutely right. She was hailed as a great patron and a great writer with great erudition after her death. So even in death, in fact, she is still drawing people together. She is still constructing these circles of writers, poets. She's still drawing people together and encouraging them to produce work after her death. She's called the mirror of princesses after her death too in the eulogy that was read at her funeral. She was also presented as a kind of model of a just ruler as well. And obviously the kind of explicit gendering of her example is strong in the texts that get written about her after her death but she's also presented as the model of a great prince or great patron who yeah continues to draw people together and provide an environment that is nurturing and creative the Seymour sisters in fact in England write a collection of Latin couplets about her. So that is the three daughters of Edward Seymour, so the older brother of Queen Jane. And they are then translated into French by a number of French poets. So there's this really interesting cross-cultural, translinguistic kind of movement of texts and eulogies and responses to her death that are used politically as well as creatively. And throughout the 16th century, the Heptameron is a bestseller, not just of women's writing, and there's very little printed by women in France in the 16th century. So the Heptameron is already exceptional in that regard, but absolutely it is a bestseller. So I think that's incredibly interesting because the history of France in the late 16th century is one of increasing division and polarisation, of civil war, of religious division and political division. And yet people are still buying and still reading the Heptameron, which proposes this much more open, much more conciliatory view of the value of dialogue and of accommodating difference that seems to be impossible in political life, but perhaps is still imaginable somehow in creative life. And indeed, one might say during a period of increasing patriarchy, 
there's still this possibility of men and women being represented differently that can be read as well. I think so, yes, absolutely. And as you mentioned before, the very clear kind of representation of women's voices too as part of a dialogue with men and with each other. Thank you so much for this introduction to an exceptional woman, Marguerite de Navarre, who yet spoke for women of all stripes in her period and shows us the limits of the possible, I suppose, for women at the time. And those who want to know more, of course, must go and read Marguerite's own work, but also should pick up your book, Marguerite de Navarre, A Critical Commentary, which has recently come out. Thank you so much for the time. That- when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. There's some corkers here. Stories you know and stories you may never have heard of. It's available online at channel4.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.